Whether you like it or not, Russian is one of the world's most important languages. It's the native tongue for more than 150 million people and a second language for tens of millions more. Its popularity ain't what it used to be, of course. In places where Russian has been spoken historically, there's an ongoing legacy of colonialism and imperialism, and specifically, the Putin regime's damage to Russia's international standing in recent decades isn't doing the language any favors either. But how much control does the Kremlin wield over the Russian language today? And how do Russian speakers both inside Russia and beyond navigate a language that many around the world now associate with invasion, aggression, and autocracy? If Vladimir Putin has hijacked the Russian language, what can Russian speakers do about it? That's the subject of this week's podcast episode. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. For today's episode of the podcast, I spoke to a scholar about the Putin regime's abuse of the Russian language and the identity politics now raging within the Russian diaspora and Russian-speaking communities abroad. Before jumping into today's interview, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. All right, let's get to this week's show. In late October, philologist Gassan Gusenov, a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge's Jesus College who studies Russian political rhetoric and history, wrote an essay for Nova Gazeta Europa about how contemporary Russian diaspora communities are bucking past trends of linguistic stagnation by consciously reassessing the dominant discourse shaped largely by the Kremlin back home. This week, Dr. Gusenov developed these ideas further in a guest essay for Medusa titled A Taste for Resistance, where he reflected on the experiences of past waves of Russian emigrants and on today's interactions between the Russian-speaking diaspora and Russian-speaking Ukrainians, as well as emerging trends among younger Russian speakers. Dr. Gusenov was kind enough also to join the Naked Pravda to talk more about how he views the social and political state of the Russian language today. What do you mean when you say that in Putin's speech, in Putin's discourse and rhetoric, there is no, no space, no place for the language of culture, science, knowledge, education? Because, I mean, when I hear him talk, it sounds like he's constantly talking about the importance of Russian culture and tradition and high-tech weapons, which I assume requires science and how we need to teach the youth all the right things and patriotism and so on. So it's, it seems like the language does accommodate those things, but you clearly mean something different. So what is it you mean? I mean, actually, one particular thing. Language is not only an instrument to communicate and is not only an instrument to analyze the reality, to work as a scientist, as a scholar, and so on, but it is also a social institution. So at the moment when 
it is forbidden in this society to say about war in, in Ukraine that it is war. It is forbidden to criticize any activity of the people who are at the moment who have power in this country. It is forbidden to say a word about LGBT community or or about religious freedom or decolonization of the former Russian Empire and so on. So the most important subjects of social life are not present at the social discussion. And from this particular point of view, it is really, it doesn't matter if you have had any great literature, any philosophy, physics or mathematics and so on. And the incorporation of this actually irrelevance of high culture of, of the past days is the uh, wave of emigration. The most progressive Part from the scientific point of view, from the social point of view, from the political point of view of this society is trying to escape to Kazakhstan, to Georgia, to Armenia, to Europe, to the Balkan states, to Turkey. And that is a sort of, uh, you know, that is a sort of uh, virtual and real incorporation of what is going on with the language. People cannot live and just be silent all the time. That's a problem. In another part of the essay, you talk about the experience of these these immigrants, they, these Russian immigrants. They've left Russia, and their situation has changed dramatically. Like, before they left, they were in a position where they were not, I mean, not necessarily all of them, but it was sort of common to sort of look down on migrant workers and others that, that are doing menial labor, that don't speak Russian as well enough, and so on. And now they're they're elsewhere, and you write about them coming to terms with a different status, maybe a lower status. What exactly is this experience? Is it humbling? Is it frustrating? I assume it's both, but how would you describe it? It is really a very a very good question, and it is a very, a very deeply rooted problem. When Russia went out of the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1990s, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who in the late Soviet times were oriented towards the West, towards the United States, Israel, Europe, they left the country. There are no exact figures, but many physicists, uh, many IT specialists, many nuclear uh, specialists, and so on. Uh, linguists, I don't even mention the uh, humanities scholars, thousands and thousands who were, let us say, Westerners in their ideology. They left the country, some of them for some time, some of them for, for a very long time. So I myself left in 1990 as soon as this opportunity appeared, and I spent 17 wonderful years in the West, in Germany, in Switzerland. I was in the United States and so on. Then I came back in the year 2007. What I found, I found that there are of course, many, many colleagues who are Westerners from the point of view of their values and so on. But the attitude towards people from the former Soviet Union, from Central Asia, from the Caucasus, from the Southern Caucasus, from different regions uh, of the country who are not Russians, Tajiks, Kyrgyz, Uzbeks, and so on, 
they were actually seen in Russia as people of the third sort. And for many also intellectuals, it became a sort of a habit. Ah, oh, these Tajiks, if even they were in their own country, in their own former Republic of the Soviet Union, they could be teachers, uh, professors at their universities, painters, and so on. But they came to Russia, as we say it in Russian, black workers, so to say workers who are busy in the factories, in the service. At my university, there were young women from Kyrgyzstan who were who got their Soviet PhDs, but still they used to work at the university in in their country. But because of the civil war there, because of the low wages, they came to Russia, and they were of course not accepted as high school teachers or as teachers at all. So they were people of the the so so to say unseen aliens. And now imagine some of our colleagues are now running away from the from the army to the Central Asian republics where they would like to act as high school teachers, as professors. Some of them managed to, to do that, but the majority cannot find anything and they suddenly realize themselves in the position of the former Soviet citizens coming to Russia. And that is, of course, a great shock for them because they they are already educated, some of them in the second generation, that we are, so to say, white people. We are, it is normal that we have a higher position. How can all these people speaking with accents and being so, you know, secondary, how can they at all pretend to to become somebody in our country, which is so Western, so liberal, and so on? So that is, of course, a great shock for themselves to come into this position. There are even jokes about it, but it is difficult to translate them into English. Uh, uh, And it is very painful. Uh, It is also very painful for many uh, people with the with a very good education, who came to Europe but cannot find themselves because there are so many bureaucratic obstacles. There are so many complications. Uh, You need documents, but you also need a sort of legal, let us say, ABC. You, You have to know that you cannot just go somehow as it is possible in Russia, which is completely corrupt from this point of view. So when you come from the country of decades of corruption, to the world where corruption is still a sort of excess, it's not the it's not the rule, then you have great problems. All this shock, how would you say it's influencing the development of the Russian language in these diaspora communities? Is it is it evident yet? I mean, like the two extremes of this emotionally seem to me to be humiliation and frustration. And I wonder is that reflected somehow in the way they speak, in the kind of conversations they have that then kind of develop their consciousness? Or is this is it still too early to really say where this is going to lead? It is really complicated. And although I am myself studying this phenomenon, but I cannot say that there is a clear line or there are clear groups which can be somehow distinguished which one 
has which strategy because there is, generally speaking, the shock of this war and the shock of the migration is stronger than even habits of reflection. So there are many people, there are authors, there are scientists who actually feel a tremendous frustration uh, at this situation. And that is a sort of rainbow reactions. You have people who on Monday uh, are thinking uh, quite soberly about their own position, about the necessity to give their language to their children or their grandchildren. And then on Tuesday, they say it's good for nothing. We don't need it all. Forget it. Let us... uh, uh, let us assimilate, let us stop it all with all this Russian, with all this Russian, with this language, with this country, and so on. And on Wednesday, again, there is some uh, some consideration. Look, we still belong to this tradition. We have to do something in order not only to keep it somehow, uh, to save it, but also to expand it, to give it to our children, to talk to our colleagues, to talk to our students, and so on. And the reason for it, for this rainbow status of the discussion, I would say are the social networks, all these Facebook, uh, Telegram channels, YouTube, the option to find somebody who is thinking as you are thinking, or the option to fight somebody who is your enemy, is also taking a lot of time. And many people who have a sort of minimal, level of financial independence or who can live with their children or with their grandchildren, they spend a lot of time discussing uh, in the web. And uh, it is, of course, sort of, one can say, well, it is not so serious. It is just a virtual reality. But this virtual reality uh, is leading to heart attacks, to aggression, inside communities. So it is really a point of great scholarly interest in the way which is completely new. And we we, we see it uh, really all over the world. We we see uh, discussions on this subject. One of the things about the the essay that you wrote that actually surprised me because I wasn't expecting it, but the, the essay is in large part about the Russian-speaking diaspora and, and their trials and travails and so on. But you also write quite a bit about the Russian language in Ukraine and among among Ukrainians, among the Ukrainian diaspora, because there's obviously a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And you mentioned how initial reactions in places like Odessa, intellectuals were attempting to switch to Ukrainian in their on- online conversations, but that as the invasion has sort of progressed, there's been something of a, a, a movement, I guess, to reclaim the Russian language from the Russian authorities, from the Putin regime. And I wonder, do you think that the Russian language, is it dying or is it flourishing in Ukraine now and in the Ukrainian diaspora? Like, what's the, because I guess like the expectation, I think, among a lot of Westerners is like, okay, well, you know, Russian's over in Ukraine because Putin has made everything Russian bad. But there are still millions of Ukrainians who speak Russian, and so what's the what's their story? There are very different stories, and there are very painful stories because many Russians or Russian-speaking people who 
watched themselves as Ukrainians. So to say, they were so-called ethnic Russians, speaking Russian, but living in Ukraine, identifying themselves with Ukraine, and not willing, actually, to go to be in Russia, to be with Russia. It's one group. Another group, which is perhaps not so, uh, let us say, uh, not so huge, but I, I don't know exactly how many of them, but they were they were ready to be with Russia. They were ready to accept this illegal annexation of Crimea. They were even ready to accept the uh, war in Donetsk and Lugansk. But then when they saw what really happened, when they saw how this story is developing, they changed their mind. And in this change of their mind, many of them said, we don't want to have anything with Russia at all. So we hardly speak Ukrainian, but we will switch to Ukrainian. And it is perhaps not a significant part of the of the Russian speaking or Russian population in Ukraine, but still very active and very, I would say, profoundly argumenting. And some of these people, of course, you can understand it. You can follow the, 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 the way these people think. But on the other side, thinking about the future, about what, what is going on to happen with our children, with ourselves, we have to, uh, to see for our eyes history of Germany and Jewish people who lost millions and millions of lives in Germany. And it is, of course, you, you cannot look for a balance or something. It's just stupid. But language as it is for many people is not a subject of denying, so to say. You, you, many people are thinking like, let us say, Thomas Mann, who didn't want to live in Germany, but he used this language. He wrote in German and he addressed Germans during the war. And for many people living in Ukraine, for many people working for the media, Russian is their second language or even their first language. So they are using this language now in order to, to help ordinary Russians who are really not politically affected or where, let us say, just neutral, if it is possible nowadays to bring these people mentally and, so to say, emotionally in order with their language. It is good for nothing to talk with Russians in Ukrainian. They don't understand Ukrainian. Ukrainians understand Russian, but Russians don't understand any other language except Russian. And that is why this language is, on the first scale, an instrument to communicate with people in Russia who are normal, who are not affected by this Nazi ideology of, of Putin. On the other side, speaking about Russians, we are, of course, you know, I'm a monolingual person. I, I'm not bilingual. I, I understand Ukrainian. I started to learn Ukrainian. I'm talking to many people from the Eastern Ukraine, dozens of people, colleagues, and so on. And I realize that the main problem and the main the uh, crime against culture and, and, and language was to tell Russians that their Russian language belonged to them. 
That is, it is their belonging and doesn't belong to the Ukrainians. And from this point of view, I feel it a very good sign when Ukrainians who are thinking a little bit further or whose mother tongue is Russian, that they say we don't want to give up our language to Kremlin, to Moscow, and so on. It is the same thing with the with the church, with the Christianity. I am agnostic, so to say, but I, I have this empathy with the people who think, how can it be possible that the Russian Orthodox, or pretending to be Orthodox president or the, 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 the chief of the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Church, is attacking and killing the same people who belong to him uh, with culture, with, with their faith and so on. And this is a sort of what German called Kurzschluss, Karotka Zemekani in Russian, a sort of short circuit. When communication is not possible, self-analysis is no more possible at this particular moment. And that is why I think that those Ukrainians, and there are many of them, there are many media people who say, we use this language, we speak this language, this is our language too. And this is the language of probably the minority of Russians, but this minority will one day expand to majority, as it happened to Germans in Germany after the uh, World War II. That is, uh, that is uh, of course, there is a problem there. And the problem is that Russian state, Russian imperial state, the whole 19th century, so since actually, since Catherine uh, the Great, the idea was that we have to subjugate, assimilate all these Ukrainians. There are no Ukrainians. There is no Ukrainian language. All these legal acts or illegal acts of forbidding Ukrainian in the 19th century, the whole story is so terrible. And in the short period of Soviet history, in the 1920s, when the idea was, let them, let them live, laissez-faire, no danger. But then Stalin realized that the independent thinking in Ukraine will inevitably lead this country to say, well, we are exactly as independent as Poland or as Czechoslovakia. Why should we, or Yugoslavia, why should we, should we stay under Russian control? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Soviet control, but in fact, organized as a follow-up state of the Russian Empire. And in order to stop it all, Stalin started in the early 30s to subjugate uh, with, the, with the worst brutality other ethnic groups and his own peasants, by the way. So the this anti-peasant war of Stalin had a national or ethnic color in Kazakhstan, in the Volga region, in Ukraine, and especially in Ukraine, which used to be the most important agricultural production land in the former Soviet Union. last question I had for you has to do with this concept of 
language resistance developing, particularly among younger Russians and obviously mm-hmm. in the diaspora. I wonder, are you very optimistic about this sort of movement, if it can be described as a movement? Because my impression is, is that there has always been, at least in post-Soviet modern Russian history, there's there have always been pockets, and you mentioned this, pockets of kind of anti-government, anti-Putin, anti-Kremlin activity. And they have, I guess, what you could describe as kind of their own rhetoric. And maybe one of the most successful orators in that movement would be Alexei Navalny. But it seemed to me as though the more popular and the more exposure he got, the more concerns there were that he's a dangerous populist and so on. And so that almost makes me worry that there's like a ceiling for language resistance against the Putin regime. And once it succeeds at a certain level, even within its own community, the group starts to say, oh, well, this is becoming dangerous now. It's too much like like Putin's own rhetoric. And so I wonder, is there something self-defeating about this resistance group that they'll never be able to reach that level where they can actually do anything because they're so inward looking or, or cautious, or I'm not sure what the what the word is there. No, it is it is a very interesting and uh, question, and it is extremely difficult to to answer this question. First of all, Navalny. Navalny is. Uh, I, I recently found my publications about his rhetoric, about his language uh, of the year 2018 or earlier, and in one of these publications, I say that Navalny is actually using American political rhetoric in Russia. He is speaking not as a Russian politician. He's speaking in the style, in the uh, tradition of the debates in the United States. And that is why I actually, I didn't know at that time how deeply he was involved and how much he studied in the United States in his style. That is why, although Nominally, he has some support in Russia, but in fact, the whole story with the declaring of himself and of his foundation and of other people, foreign agents, the Russian people who are in, 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 in charge now, they are actually provoking nationalist, very primitive understanding of Russianness as completely closed as non-America, so to say, no, no Western. So the linguistic sovereignty of Navalny is at the same time a movement to another level, to a higher level of political discussion. And at this particular point, the society we live in or with in Russia is not ready for this level because it is speaking the language of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, great power, our colonies, belonging, and so on. On the other side, the problem for Russian, that's why I'm not very optimistic. The problem of Russian Federation is the suppression of minority languages all over the country. Minorities in general, with their languages, Tatars, Chechens, so nominally they have all linguistic rights. But in fact, their languages are not obligatory in the school. You cannot teach in Tatar, in Tatarstan at the university. 
you have to teach in Russian. So from this point of view, there is no sense to to develop, to expand the, the knowledge of these languages. So from this point of view, I'm pessimistic because I know really very, very few Russian scholars who realize the scale of the problem, who realize what it is, what it means to, to live in a country where your language as language politically is suppressing other languages. But if and when the Russian educated community realizes the amount of problems other languages have, there could be a break with this tradition and movement towards development of the Russian state on another ground. But right now I see the centrifugal tendencies much stronger and this frustration and the understanding that uh, Russian language itself is in the hands of cannibals and bandits and, uh, right. you know, KGB and so on uh, people. The, the fact that Russian language is a sort of hostage of these people is a very strong, very strong foundation for pessimism. Also, concerning diasporas and, and, and so on, especially young people. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from philologist Dr. Gusan Gusenov about language politics in the Russian diaspora and Russian-speaking communities across Europe and Eurasia. Thanks for tuning into the show, and thank you for supporting our work at Medusa. Until next week. Mm-hmm.